Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Evolve to Succeed. This week I'm speaking to Kissan Patel, CEO and founder of MA Science and Deal Room. Chicago-based Kissan believes that in a world of increasing technological disruption, mergers and acquisitions are becoming necessary in order to stay relevant. However, he's seeing these transactions failing because of a lack of knowledge around deal process and integration. Kissan is also the author of Agile MA which charts the project management technique that launched Silicon Valley and how it can be scaled and implemented to improve the life cycle of M&A while increasing value and helping you close deals faster. As well as M&A, Kissan talks about re-engaging your team in acquisitions, the dangers of ego in selling, the importance of cultural alignment and how to ease the process between agreeing terms and completing a successful transaction. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Kisson, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Warren. Yeah, it's going to be great to have you on the podcast. I'm sure we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation around mergers, acquisitions, that what a good sales process looks like, maybe a bit around the kind of acquisition versus organic growth and all of those kind of things. But I suppose... To, kick things off let's talk about you tell us a little bit about your story your journey and how you came to be doing what you're doing now absolutely pretty typical founder story i spent about 10 years in m&a advisory with a boutique practice based out of chicago doing a lot of lower middle market transactions hospitality working with hotel chains working with small financial institutions community banks, helping them raise capital, buy other banks, sell banks. And uh, when you had that industry experience, you get pretty familiar with the pain points and challenges. Yeah. Uh, I got involved with a startup that was a marketing technology that didn't work out, but it, I was responsible for managing a lot of the product development and was really intrigued by the way software engineers were utilizing these project management tools to manage developing the software. I kept reflecting to my experience in M&A and thought, well, why not for M&A? Why don't we have a tool to actually manage this pretty cumbersome process? So that was the inspiration to start a company in 2012 called DealRoom as project management software for M&A. That product took a lot of learning lessons. I had to learn how to actually build technology, get a productive engineering team, get product market fit, figure out your go-to-market, all the hard way. Uh, but once we got into the right position, the product itself evolved from just managing the diligence part of M&A 
to also including integration management, which allowed there to be nice continuity between those stages, and then pipeline management. So really evolved into a full lifecycle management solution and our focus shift from working with advisors to working with corporates. Uh, so today we primarily work with billion plus market cap companies that do three or more acquisitions a year. In the early days of working with these organizations, I was interested, maybe even frustrated with the inconsistency between company to company that we worked with. Every organization seemingly to had their own unique way of what M&A mm-hmm. is and how to approach it, which came to the realization that the bigger underpinning problem in the industry is this lack of standardization or real evidence in the approaches that we take to do M&A. Around that time in 2017, a buddy of mine, Andy in marketing was like, hey man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell is a podcast? What's one of those? Don't worry about it. It's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. So I, I told him about, hey, we do these phone calls for research. And I, I feel like this is the thing the industry needs is more of documented best practices. And he's like, yeah, yeah, just go record conversations and publish it. So hey. we we ended up doing a whole series of interviews with practitioners and essentially leveraged a podcast as a platform to enable practitioners to share their lessons learned. And over a series of these interviews, we began to identify the patterns and documented what are some of the proven techniques in the industry, which allowed us to publish a whole series of content, 350 plus blog posts, eBooks. We actually have two books published. One notable of the two is a book called Agile M&A, which is based on case studies with Google and Alassian, specifically how they utilize agile techniques in their M&A approach. And that we published as a framework so it continues to evolve where we add additional practices around it. Uh, so it's been fun. Now we we publish that. It allows companies that follow this old traditional plan-driven approach to follow more of a modern agile-based approach when pursuing M&A. So today we, we do a lot. We do educational business lines and technology stuff and just try to be as helpful as we can. I think ultimately that's what being a good uh, business being good in business, also being a good business partner is all about your capabilities. How well you can listen to your customer, problem solve, keep finding more problems, develop quality solutions, and um, just have that capability to be a good resource. So what what an interesting, fascinating journey. I mean, I suppose one of the things, you know, before we get into some of the detail is you've gone through that kind of advisor corporate life to founding your own business, building that and succeeding. What do you think your own personal biggest challenge, and I think you alluded to some of them in, in that intro, but what do you think some of your own biggest challenges were in making that step from sort of employment advisor world to founding your own software tech, you know, business? That's a learning curve. Like there just is so much to learn. And thank God that there's a thing called Wikipedia because I was <laughs> able to learn so much about technology and all these crazy acronyms that engineers throw around, learn what they mean. And it wasn't that I learned to program, but I had a good understanding of technology and the applications of various technologies that I could get the company going with this project management approach or being very hands-on about it Mm. and, and bootstrap it. I think that was a key thing that we've done was we stayed so lean 
for those early years to go through a series of iteration to really get a solution that solved actual problems that people cared about in the industry. Um, so I, I think one, there was this tons and tons of stuff to learn about what the whole process actually is to build solutions and, and things of that sort. Uh, but then it just keeps evolving because then you get into how do you really know you got a market fit? And then the go-to-market was a whole other hard lesson. We started copying what the competitors were doing, uh, the encumbrance, and it burned through a bunch of money and had not little, little show for it, not realizing when you're trying to disrupt the market, you got to disrupt the market. You yeah. got to come at it in a whole gotta different way. Got to be different, way. you? Yeah. Yeah, you can. So nowhere, you shouldn't copy the product from anybody. You should be original about that approach. So you develop this feedback cycle that allows you to be innovative by being mm -hmm. able to listen really well to your prospective customers. And then uh, the others with that, that go to market, like same thing. You got to be innovative there and understand how people would purchase your product, uh, what price point they would do it, what that distribution model is going to look like. Cause that needs to be disruptive as well. Definitely. I, something that's interesting about that is you obviously mentioned that kind of lean startup approach, which, you know, drives a lot of success, doesn't it? Because you're, you're keen, you're lean. But coming from your background, did you ever not think, actually, we should seek kind of angel investment, equity investment, and actually put the foot on the gas? What made you decide to take the lean approach? Yeah, nobody wanted to give me a check. That's what gave me the... the... <laughs> yeah. See I, answer. <laughs> I, you know, Chicago, I was in this market that isn't like the Silicon Valley. I mean, the Silicon Valley was in its heyday. I mean, it was, you go, people would leave, people would migrate from Chicago and go out there and, 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 you know, figure out how they find their partners. They just had such a robust ecosystem where in, uh, in Chicago, the culture wasn't like that. Very old school. People aren't going to invest anything. That's Lisa's making a million revenue, very much of a private equity mindset I, I think even still today i don't think much has changed there's a better ecosystem for uh platforms that allows those incubator type of, of mm. um, growth with early stage companies but it, i don't think it still has that same kind of robust culture like silicon valley has. so that was part of it was i remember shopping around capital and getting one term sheet and was disappointed uh in, in that and then i thought hey I can just put more capital into it, not realizing that I was going to do that for a long time. <laughs> uh, so that, um, yeah, I did end up investing a lot more than I originally anticipated, but now I'm, I'm all bought in and uh, yeah. it, it took and time. There, I mean, yeah. And was there a moment at all where you thought this is, this is too challenging. This is too difficult. This is, I'm all in, but am I doing the right thing? Was there ever that moment of self-doubt on that journey? Several times, several times. I, I remember one point where I originally thought we were building a self-service type of product. And that's what I was really infatuated with was to have a true SaaS self-service product uh, that could scale and scale and scale. And I'd find myself in a matter of months on the beach, just sitting there with a <laughs> nice drink of an umbrella in it and just hitting the refresh button on my, on my Chase mobile app. Uh, just watching the numbers go up. And uh, when I realized that we are changing directions and going more towards an enterprise sales model, I was so disappointed. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> this ain't me. This is, I'm not in. I'm I don't want to sell the software. That's not fun. I, nobody wants to be. I don't want to be running around 
trying to sell the software and do all this pitching. Uh, I don't know. I was so, I was caught up in that. I remember that was one point. And I, I've had some fails too with building the product team. That was really tough because we had to go through a series of, of uh, iterations in that team to get a team that was, I think you have one team that can prototype really well and then a different team that can develop for uh production for scale yeah so that was a, a big transition that was a lot of you know turbulence there but i remember there's just one fundamental rule the thing i've realized the number one reason why startups fail is because they give up so that was the thing i always went back on as long as you don't give up you don't persevere fail. yeah persevere persevere and i suppose that's it's true isn't it and that journey to scale for a successful kind of founder is is really difficult because you do start with the team around you and it's a close-knit team isn't it and you all believe in it, each other and you believe in it but if you start to scale and scale quickly you can outgrow some of those original in- individuals quite quickly and it can happen again later on in the journey can't it and as a founder that can be a you know that can be a difficult process to go through and I and I'm not all individuals go through that and realize that and sometimes that's where they start to hit kind of a false ceiling would you agree with that oh yeah you i mean even today we have just different challenges we went last year we had 20 people this year 35 people uh and you're really formalizing functions in the company and you're starting to create new functions right now on the verge of standing up finance and hr uh so it's you always have some some unique challenges and that that part of keeping the same things that you had from before that's not possible cool so great introduction to you kissan and really um really interested to hear that story and i think that for our listeners will put it into perspective what we're going to talk about next is some of your thoughts some of your inspirations some of your kind of advice that you would give to anybody going through some form of m&a activity by that be that buying be that selling their business i suppose be it raising kind of equity uh, funding so I suppose a really broad and open question to kick off with you know there is some must be some common mistakes that you see when people are undertaking any form of m a activity um you know what would some of those common mistakes be in your book yeah I, mean, I think there's distinctly two sides of the the deal there's a buy side and a sell side and they're yeah. very very different uh, and what, you, what you're actually doing or what your goals are. I think the common thing on both sides when we think about where where some of these things go awry is preparation and the strategy. So we can pick apart um, the buy side when a company is growing uh, organic channels um, and maybe that growth is either slowed down or they're looking to supplement it uh then they can pursue inorganic growth opportunities which oftentimes includes acquisitions mm-hmm. and they the first step is to clarify a strategy on what, what parameters would you acquire or prompt an acquisition because otherwise you get this thing where you find a company or an opportunity and then you're you're convincing everyone to do it and it's uh yeah. It's like and I a, suppose a you can solution changing the problem situation. And you can get that ego kick in, can't you? You know, people buy because of ego just for growth without 
a purpose or a reason or, a, as you say, a strategy or an end game in mind as to what good looks like. It's they just start a process and follow it and won't, you know, and an ego gets in the way. Do you see that? Yeah, you're going to have a uh, you're going to have an executive team that's rolling their eyes like, oh, here we go again. Warren's off on another one. Found a yeah. new shiny thing. To, to... But when, when you really flush out a strategy, it, it does create a lot of value because it becomes clear. You can put that strategy out there across the organization and saying, Hey, the, this is where we're intending, uh, to do strategically that it's a big focus on the market share that we're looking to grow. It's a focus on adding capabilities, acquiring engineering talent. Like it really, really clarifies things for your executive team and management team. Uh, I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at tech companies, a lot of their deals that they end up pursuing aren't sourced by the CEO or executive team or even their corporate development department that manages a lot of this. It's actually the product people. Hmm. Because when they have this understanding of the strategy, they know that they're, they can help identify those opportunities. When they understand that m and is a tool to use against the strategy, then now all of a sudden you, you kind of have this whole organization that understands why we're, why it makes sense to acquire this deal. And they can even go as far as helping identify those opportunities. Um, I know that makes a complete sense, but any hints on tips, you know, the, the way in which strategy can be set, particularly in mind that, you know, the way perhaps a large corporate would go about setting that compared you know, to our audience, which is owner-managed entrepreneurial businesses. And when you say, let's go set a strategy, that can be sound like a daunting task. So any hints and tips on how they should think about and set that strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think being inclusive of who are those stakeholders that you want to have involved to get aligned and, and shape, get their input on. So for, for us, even a, a company our size, we, we still run that across our functional leads. And then we may have some people that have some real tangible value on product that we want to get their, their feedback and input on. Uh, you know, obviously a large company, you got boards and, you know, committees upon committees for, for yeah. things like this. But, you know, th you think about that, get the, those, who are those, those key stakeholders, uh, and then be able to just start with something we always do this in, in the beginning of the year we really really clarify what are some of the things and you may have a, a flavor of that that you're doing as an organization but being able to broaden it and look at hey if we really wanted to accelerate this beyond the organic and and, and i think part of it too is an education exercise on the inorganic means mm. Uh, so if we are getting aggressive on our strategy and our goal is market share and we are looking to get into this LATAM market, uh, you know, is m a a tool that we could potentially use to expedite that, to get us in there so we're not starting it from zero, that it takes us, you know, t a 10-year journey, but can we potentially accelerate that through through an acquisition? Um, I, I think that's a little bit of just getting that, that here's a strategy, but here's what are, what are the area, how are we, how are we going to do it? How are we going to exercise on that? So to kind of really that, that kind of how and why kind of thing, you know, why are we doing this and how are we going to go about doing it? And at what point in that 
I suppose it will apply. We'll come and talk about sales process differently, I suppose. But in that by process, in terms of finding the opportunities and the deals and, you know, the acquisition targets, it's interesting. Like you say, once you've shared that, and I can see that, that your whole team comes engages and it's the product managers or the developers that might highlight potential opportunities. But what processes, you know, do should businesses go through to seek those acquisitions? And at what point do you think they should be appointing advisors to help them? Yeah. Well, once you get that point, you got a clear strategy, then you can do the the fun part, go out and yeah. search for these things. There's different ways. I, I think some people tend to default to, let me find the bankers that cover. A lot of times, if you're in that role, that m is your primary activity of your job a corporate development then a lot of bankers are introducing themselves to you so for that that it, it's good to have that ecosystem just the more people you know the better you can at least maybe you discover some opportunities to the auction processes uh you get an idea of what market valuations are uh, i i think at some point earlier the better to start developing your own proprietary or proactive origination process in-house be it that you start identifying who's going to have responsibility for sourcing um, and and have that person communicate internally. Because like I said, if stakeholders internally, if folks can identify opportunities, they know who to bring it to. Um, They can also leverage a variety of databases. There's a bunch of databases you can use. You could probably go on Upwork and post a little ad, have somebody that has one of the expensive databases like SMP and PitchBook to uh, go pull a report out for your your sector. Uh, when we've, I've used Hoover's before, I've used LinkedIn. There's a bunch of different ways to find your list because you want to build a target list. And, you know, there's a target list, but then there's also um, a market map, depending if you're going on a multi-vertical strategy, then you may just want to create a, a market map just to, layout here's the different verticals and where the the companies fit in those uh in your target list and then uh just reach out i, I think from there it, it, it's being very proactive and disciplined about that reach out because if you think about it it's a sales cycle yeah. it's not a fast sales cycle you know you could get lucky maybe get something done in as little as three months or you may spend a decade trying to get a deal done and anything and everything between uh so that that's the thing is if you can start having those conversations get on the radar of these companies uh, and just be casual about it hey you know we're, we're obviously got some aggressive strategies of growth um but i think it's more about the company when you can be a little forward and saying your company's interesting because sometimes even th- thinking about is an opportunity to even partner? Is there an opportunity to do something to to test this this thesis about um, that acquisition with the company could be very favorable? Um, I think one of the things we think about where things fall out um, that that not emphasizing the culture alignment because ultimately when we look at making an acquisition, it's one that large tend to be the largest uh, investments an organization will make. It's for the company they're acquiring, it's the largest magnitude of change management. And so much of the success depends on how well these two unique unique cultures are gonna come together and align, be able to work together, be motivated, go out and achieve goals. 
Uh, if you don't get that right, then you could have some pretty disastrous situation. And, and yeah, if you look back in history, that's true, isn't it? It's it's fit, isn't it? It's getting the right fit and the right understanding. And, and, and culturally, as you say, um, is really, really important. And that's often overlooked, isn't it? It's It starts to look at, people start to drill down on the raw numbers and here's, you know, put two plus two together and we get five, not four. And and the synergies and, and all of that. And everybody gets excited about the common, you know, um, products, but those diversification opportunities. And, and actually people don't think about the two things you've talked about there, which is so true, which is culture fit, but the change management process. And that actually to, you know, again, you know, to go through that kind of process as a whole change management curve, isn't there? And, and if you don't understand that and you don't manage to that, then you can alienate people quite quickly in terms of trying to put the businesses together. That's the hard part. It's all the stuff you have to do after you buy the business that generates value. Um, that that's where things could definitely, it's people, it's the people issues. The industry is changing. In the last five years, we're seeing a much greater emphasis in this area, but I, I do think it's very tough for the company doing the first acquisition. There is a big, steep learning curve, so I wouldn't bet the whole farm on the first acquisition. I think if you can find something relatively small that does align is is a good starting place okay. because you, you have to build a capability. You have to have your functional leaders understand what M&A is, understand what kind of diligence they need to do so that they can both identify the risks uh, in doing the deal itself be able to create these mitigation plans if there's risks that they identify. At that time, they should also be planning for how they're going to integrate the company. Um, and it, it takes some time to, to really develop that capability in your organization. Hmm. So that's where it's, it, it is. It's, it is a whole capability. The companies that do well are the ones that have done a number of acquisitions then they they get mature their function gets mature and capabilities get mature about how they are able to do acquisitions and do you think that the funding landscape is changing significantly at the moment for you know perhaps again the smes that are looking to do acquisitions do you think funding is out there or do you think you know most deal structures these days in that kind of end of the market are still very much on a kind of deferred consideration earn out type basis when they're looking to make acquisitions. Yeah. I've been writing the news about shortage of capital recently. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I don't think that's the problem. I, I, I think when you think of the earn outs, it, a lot of it comes in play just because of valuation expectations. Yeah. So it, there's a variance. We work primarily with corporates. They have their own capital structure that they are, they're leveraging with the way their, their balance sheet operates. When you're working with PE firms, they tend to leverage a lot and there's mm. a lot of debt available. Um, but with the earnouts, that that tends to be really geared towards bridging some of those gaps, um, the valuation gaps, or, or maybe it's just part of how they want to retain some of the, the leadership in the organization. Uh, so I think there's some various factors in how they structure it. Um, but it's a good point. There definitely is creative ways because there tends to be that difference where what uh, a seller thinks their company is worth and a buyer. Yeah. Uh, willing buyer, willing seller. Very difficult sometimes to get those to meet, isn't it? 
it's it's interesting because as a seller you may think that there's this market value out there for what your business is worth uh and doing this for a while the value of what your business is worth is unique to the buyer each buyer would have a different value they would place on your business so it isn't like this equation or flat formula uh, you can look and number crunch the models to get an idea or build your case on why you think it's worth this much, but you got to put consideration into the buyer because if it's a first time buyer and they're, they're doing this deal, they're probably going to be a, a little risk adverse. Mm. Uh, they're probably going to have to factor in some of those learning lessons that we mentioned. But if you got a large serial acquirer, like a Google, that's just have got I have well experienced bought over a hundred companies uh well oiled machine they have a huge distribution uh, capability that they could acquire your business and immediately generate value from it saying hey we're going to buy your little widget and we're going to make it part of our g suite which will get adopted by 100 million users something yeah. like, like that right but they acquire it it, it fits right in yeah, uh, they, the they just market, they, the distribution channels there, they can leverage value straight away. They'll have a different valuation model, won't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's where like one company will value at 10 million, another will value it at 50 million because they have a total different intention of how they're going to generate value from that investment. Hmm. They look at synergies. They're looking at cost synergies that we can save money because we're going to integrate this company. We're going to combine back office functions, the accounting, payroll benefits, all these things. And eliminate a lot of costs but then we also want to think about the future the revenue synergies how are we going to actually accelerate the the growth to create revenue faster uh, and that, that's where it gets interesting for these organizations to build out those models to really without being over ambitious yeah. they they don't put in things that are, aren't impossible to achieve but that they can uh, justify that premium on the acquisition based on those factors. So we sort of spun the conversation around neatly there. And I think let's continue along that vein around, you know, we've talked about being buyer side, let's talk about being sort of sell side now. And if you're kind of the business owner, entrepreneur listening to this podcast and thinking, actually, you know, I want to go on that journey towards achieving a successful exit. You know, there's some phrases that are sort of always touted around, aren't there? And one of those is that preparing or grooming for sale and you know what does that process really mean kiss on yeah when you prepare a company for sale it's it's cleaning the house you need clean financials for someone to review you need your operations to be sound and if you can get somebody in that's done that before Somebody that has M&A experience, they've prepped a company for, so maybe a CFO, like a, a finance-oriented person, that would that would be a key thing to do. And we, I've seen that. I've seen with large organizations, even with sophisticated boards, they're going to do that. They're going to really try to prep a good year ahead of time. Um, you know, if you're a smaller business, you could probably work with an advisor to do this. Mm. If you are working with an investment bank, they can help with this as well. Uh, I think that the strategy still falls in play here, right? Because the strategy on how you, why you're selling, 
uh, are you selling purely objectively for cash out at the highest possible uh, price to, to compensate investors yourself? Are there other considerations? Is the priority to continue the business so it finds a good home, that it continues to grow, the people there are have an opportunity to grow with the business? I think figuring that part out is important because there's this long and short approach to selling a business. The long approach, you take your time and court the potential suitors. Yeah. And really take your time before you, you sort of sign the, the marriage certificate and uh, you know make that big term commitment. And when you can do that, it gives you a lot of time to go get to know people, to date, maybe even do a little like a partnership, you know, yeah. just just see if the relationship does work. Yeah. And that's it's it's just decisions in general. If you can have the time on your side, put the consideration in, you tend to make better decisions. Um now when you're working with the investment bank, they have this ability to create a auction process where they can invite many buyers. Now, they may deter some buyers because there's some savvy buyers out there uh, hmm. like myself that tend to shy away from those kind of auction processes. And you, you know better. When you when you go through an, an auction process, it's competitive, which is good for selling because you can create a price that is uh, very competitive and have confidence you got the best price you could. Um, but when you go through that, process timelines are very compressed um you tend to sort of skip some of the steps that you would otherwise do when you're Hmm. just working principle to principle on a transaction and uh you know in some ways it's good because you get things done quickly in some ways something got missed or was miscommunicated and you don't get such of uh, a clear understanding on what you're getting into and you don't get as much time and consideration into the preparation of what you're going to do after you acquire that company yeah. so that the handoff could potentially be uh not as well thought out yeah and i suppose that's that's the thing isn't it and i I'm, a lot of people that own their businesses and they're going through that exit process they do want some sort of legacy don't they and and the auction process they've got to kind of equate then haven't they that auction process which is great on maximizing value as you say and you rightfully say v actually perhaps feeling like there is some legacy in what they've done and what they've achieved and what's best for their team, what's best for their clients, as well as trying to realize value. And that, you know, in a seller's head is a difficult one sometimes to equate, isn't it? Because, you know, I have this asset. I want to realize value. I want to maximize value, but I want to look after people as well. And that is a challenge, isn't it? An emotional challenge, I'd imagine, going through that process. Yeah, it's going to do both. I think if you're considering selling, you know, if you can have this long game consideration, but also network with bankers. Bankers, yeah. I mean, it's good so that way. At least give you an idea of what market value would be. Typically, when you go through a process too, you'd probably want to create a bake off with about three to six bankers, and see how well they know your industry, what kind of related transactions they've done, how deep their actual uh, relationships are with the potential buyers. And then they usually give you a range at the end of the presentation. You, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, don't want to jump to the one that promised you the highest value because a lot of times they can't deliver that. Uh, so figure out what's realistic. I think anytime 
buying a company, selling a company, going through all this process. Uh, what's key beyond advisors getting a really good lawyer, by the way, make sure you get a good lawyer, not your typical business lawyer, but the one that actually knows them and has done deals in the industry, but ask a ton of questions Ask, just be as curious as possible. Ask everybody a ton of questions. I think that's the most important thing about M&A. If you're that person that can ask the banker tons and tons of questions, hey, yeah. you know this buyer, but how, how you, you said, you know, so-and-so, how well do you know them? You know, can you get them on the phone today? You know, how do you really have a relationship there? Or are you just literally scraping a list and putting a bunch of people yeah. together? If you, if you scrape LinkedIn and come up with the key people that you'll approach, or do you, do you have that? Cause that, you know, in terms of a corporate finance and right, um, advisor or banker, it's that little black, black book you're nearly paying for, isn't it? Because yeah, they, exactly. you've you got the relationships that count. Yeah. You, you say, give me in front of Google. Great. Who do you know at Google? Yeah. You, you know, do, do you, well, let's, so you, you got to test that. I think asking a bunch of questions, uh, when you find the lawyer, when you, when you go through this process, uh, even when you go through, um, both sides, right. Even as a, uh, somebody that's buying a business, you know, you want to ask a lot, a lot of questions to really dig in there, understand things. Cause it's not always clear when you're dealing with executives, you don't know what their plans are. You might need them around for a couple of years to help with the transition. You may want them long-term, but that's not what yeah. they actually want to do. Asking a lot of questions is important when you're selling a company, getting that understanding of what their strategy is. Why are they interested? What are they planning to do? What's, what's your role going to be like post-close? How well do they have that thought out? If you're dealing with the buyer, they don't have any of that stuff thought out. That's probably a red flag right there. Yeah. You know, I, so I, I, uh, I think just asking a lot of questions, whatever role you are in M&A is probably the best thing you can do. And it looks good. People are like, oh, this guy's paying attention. He's, He's on the ball. On. He knows. Yeah, he knows something. Uh, I, yeah. I'll bring tell you, even as, a, yeah. even, even as an advisor, Warren, like that was the key thing, uh, was always over-preparation. You know, you have an opportunity to work with a client. Yeah. It was that as every single day I'd communicate with everybody and ask a bunch of questions. Where's this at? Where's the paperwork at? And really, really be on top of it. But absolutely. Yeah. And you talk about selecting a lawyer to, to help you and, and, and the experience, but any other tips? Because that, that that's the stage where you do see frustration in business owners when they go through any sort of transaction, be it an acquisition and particularly in the disposal scenario is they kind of, you kind of get to heads of terms, you know, and that heads aside and everybody thinks we that's it. We're good to go. But then there's that lag and that, necessary legal process that they follow and it can frustrate the hell out particularly of the entrepreneurial characters so hints and tips on getting through that kind of stage between agreeing terms and actually completing a transaction i mean if you look at m a realistically the lawyers do 80 percent of the work yeah you know so that's why it's critical to have a good lawyer you, you want somebody that you want somebody that's done deals in the same space. If you're in healthcare, gets in, you're selling a company for around 20 million, yeah. get a lawyer that's done a number of those kind of deals. They've done healthcare, they've done 20 million. You don't want any surprises that you've had this lawyer that specialized in FinTech and this is their first healthcare deal. And all of a sudden here's some unique uh, compliance or regulatory things that surprise them. So I, I, I think one, and as referrals, I, I would even, if you can even catch, if you're just starting from scratch, I mean, look at the news, you know, your space, you've seen announcements about deals that have happened. Talk to those folks, just ask the other executives saying, Hey, I'm working on this deal. 
I'm looking for the right M&A lawyer to work with. Like, who do you know? I would be extremely uh, just open about leveraging different either subject matter experts or people in your network that you can find yeah. and even reach out. People are, tend to be pretty friendly about this. I think especially principals that have gone through the process know how painful. It's highly underestimated how painful an M&A process is. So they tend to be inclined to be helpful when they are encountering other folks that are going through it. Yeah. Um, I, I found the industry to be particularly friendly and really shifting, really shifting to openness. Yeah. There used to be this closed box and secrecy about M&A. I think people now have an understanding of what's secret in M&A, what's not. What's our common problems that as a whole industry we're, we're all trying to solve. Definitely, definitely. So some great advice there. Thank you for that, both from a buyer and a kind of seller's perspective and some advice around managing transactions. So that's great. So let's, as we start to wrap up our conversation, let's come back to you. Let's come back to your journey and kind of what's next for you. I, I'm not going anywhere. I like this industry. I'm probably going to spend another 10, 15 years in the space. We have a long ways to go. We've we spent the last decade creating some compelling capabilities and how we can solve problems in a variety of areas through the M&A life cycle. And we still got a good room to grow before we can move over to a scale stage. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited about doing that is getting in the next couple of years, the company at a point that can really shift focus to scale uh, and make a material impact in the industry. So I, I think that's, that's the, the goal I have. I, I think um, the industry itself is shaping, having an opportunity to shape M and A in a way that can actually impact not the net financial results, uh, but like the people experience. A lot of times these deals start with this vision of innovation, but they result in headache, frustration, blow ups, people quitting their jobs. Uh, and then the target uh, value doesn't get captured. So if we can create a new experience that focuses more on the people, it can potentially create vastly different results that allows people to collaborate, stay aligned on priorities and, um, achieve goals fantastic brilliant a long way to go on your own personal journey which is you know great to hear and that ambition and that drive uh, within you it, it i finish with a similar question every week so you know with the podcast is called the evolve to succeed podcast so i'm gonna have to ask you what's your definition of success well definition of success i think it's uh it's it can be unique to the person if uh, your definition of success you know, for me, it's, I always think of uh, success is like, I, I tell my daughter, we talk about purpose and it's find what you love to do and be the best in the world at it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that success is like finding what you love to do. Yeah. Right. Like that's the really, cause if you find what you love to do, you tend to be happy. And then, and then if you're, if you're happy that that's, that's the pursuit, right. Is pursuit of happiness. So I, I, I would say finding what you love to do. Uh, that that's the definition of success for me. Fantastic. That's brilliant. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being an incredible guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My pleasure, Warren. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.